morning. You can open up to Revelation 6. We'll start there. Why don't we pray together one more time before we start here. Father, we just need you uh, every day. We need you especially um, today. We know that it's your spirit that gives understanding and opens our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. And so we're asking, would you do that for us? Would you help us? We need you and we need we need your help every day. So we're asking you to be here by your spirit. And you said we could ask for more of your spirit and you wouldn't, we wouldn't ask for an egg and you give us a scorpion or you would, you want to do what's good for us. We know what's good for us is to know you more, to see you more clearly, to be changed more and more into the image of your son. So we're asking for help and we're believing that uh, you hear us and you want to do that. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, we're starting in Revelation 6. We've been moving pretty slow, but I think it's going to pick up the pace here, hopefully. And at least that's the plan, Lord willing. So let's read Revelation 6 and kind of give an overview here, starting in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, its bright bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice, the voice of the fourth living creature, say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and hold and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place, and the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the Lamb who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? I'm going to jump ahead to the last, there's kind of a 
section 7, but just to make sure we get all the seven seals, let's jump to chapter 8 and read just a couple verses there. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So let's stop right there. Um, so the we're getting into the section of Revelation, which is very vivid imagery. There's lots of colors. There's lots of descriptions. Things are very memorable. But there's also a lot of interpretive lifting to be done. And we've been setting up this whole time, you know, the main points of Revelation, and we're going to lean heavily on that, what we know are the main points. And that though in each one of these sections there's actually a lot of arguments about how does this fit in in terms of time? When is the, how does the timing fit in? Is this the future? Is this the present? And there's a lot of questions like that. Today my plan is to give the main points of chapter 6, and eventually we'll circle back around and get into more of the nitty-gritty details. Um, but the reason I want to do it this way is as we do get into first century history and some of the different arguments between the different points, um, positions, I want to make sure that we have in our mind what we're supposed to take from it first. And so though this is somewhat backwards, and in a way it makes more sense to go through maybe expositionally, how am I getting to the application? Because that might take a while, I think I'm going to do it reverse, and we're going to start with, here's the main things we do know and that are clear no matter what your position is, and then we'll kind of circle back around uh, later on and get into some first century history and some various viewpoints. But what we're going to cover today is the large overview, the things that we know for sure, and really the application, how can we apply this to our life? And we can be thankful for that. I mean, just one way to look at it is, instead of thinking of the difficulties that, yeah, Revelation is a book we have to really wrestle with, we can be thankful that the really clear application things uh, are right there on the surface. And so we can be thankful for that. Um, Okay, so getting into this, Revelation 6, there's these seven seals. We talked about the scroll um, two weeks ago that I believe is the Lamb's Book of Life or Scroll of Life, same word in Greek. And now we're getting into the seals. And this is judgments, uh, difficult things. This is hard things. Things that are on the outside of this book in which are written the blessing you know, of being saved by Christ. Um, eternal life. Why is this particular message here for us and for the first century church here that this was written to? This is a section that has a lot of negative things. We read about pestilence and death and war and famine and hard things. Well, one thing we definitely know is that it's because God loves us. Uh, That's his motive for everything. Um, His love. God is love. But... Even more specifically, I want to read to you what Revelation 1.1 says at the very beginning. Some of the purposes of of this book that, that was written, that God gave to us and to the church throughout history. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, to his servant John. God wants us to know some things. 
God wants us to know what's going to take place. That's what he says. This revelation of Jesus was given to show us the things that must soon take place. The main thing is the revealing of Jesus. And we talked about that. We've talked about that extensively, that Christ is going to come in all his glory and be revealed to every person, not just Christians, but every person is going to see him. Um, we see some response, some of the negative response here at the end of this chapter. Some are going to rejoice, but some are going to say, ask the rocks to fall on them and crush them. So it's not all positive. Um, there's different responses to seeing Jesus, but everyone is going to be seeing Jesus. He is going to be revealed. And God gave us this book so that we might know some things, just like we read in Revelation 1.1. It's interesting that this book was probably written in a similar time to First Peter, which also is talking a lot about trials and difficult things going on. And I'm going to read a verse here from First Peter that I think could almost be one of the main points of Revelation. You know, we're going to go through all these chapters and you could really summarize many of the things that we're going to learn in this one verse that, for, that Peter wrote at a similar time. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's really interesting that these two books written at the same time have so much overlap. Peter says it in a very explicit, matter-of-fact way. And John, through this revelation, is saying the exact same thing, but it's kind of unfolded, and it's more imaginative, and it's more vivid. And all the things we talk about today, we could really summarize, fit very well with that. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying, he's summarizing many, many of the things in the book of Revelation, kind of down into this just one idea of, Difficulties, fiery trials. But John is giving these vivid images of what that might look like, whether it's pestilence or war or governments, whether it's persecution or sickness or death, beasts even, pestilence. All these difficult things, earthquakes, they're trials. And God doesn't want us to be surprised. That's one of the reasons that we have this particular verse in Peter, but that we have the book of Revelation is that God said he wanted to show his servants what must soon take place. And it's not all easy. There's hard things. There's a lot of hard things um, in our lives and that are, will come into our lives before everything's put right. And God wants us to be prepared. We, that's the first point. Don't be surprised when difficulties come. Don't be surprised when there's wars. Jesus says a very similar thing in Matthew 24. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be lots of difficult things going on all over the world. There's going to be death and pestilence and famine. Don't be surprised. There's a... I really like this time in history when they were exploring the, the Arctic and the Poles. It was like one of the last frontiers, you know, um, that was so difficult for humans to, to go there and to be there at all. And it's really interesting to read the accounts of um, just the difficulty. And it made me think of this section that we're talking about, about how hard it is when expectations are either uh, accurate or they're thwarted. Um, 
you've probably heard of Shackleton's famous uh, advertisement in the paper to try and get people to go. He says something, this is just a paraphrase, something like bitter cold, extreme danger, uh, high chance of death, uh, adventure, and glory if you return or something like that. But it was just the whole, there was a long list of negatives and several people signed up. I, I actually couldn't verify that that's real or whether that's a, a myth or whatever. So that may be a, a myth and, you know, looking back, but so that somebody made up, but the idea remains, um, they were going into difficulties and some people had the, these expectations and it reminded me of this story, uh, in one of the accounts, they were on the coast. They had set up their tent on the coast. I think this was of Antarctica. And there were winds, and they were hoping the ship would come and take them. And so the ship came, but there's only this small window of opportunity for them to get from the shore to the ship because when it gets cold, the whole sea freezes for miles. And so they know we have to be leaving by this date or whatever. And they're up on the quite a high cliff, really, and they're there, and they really want to leave because actually where they set up their tent is still the highest recorded sustained winds for a year <laughs> ever recorded on earth <laughs> and that's where they set their tent up unknowing you know this is years ago so it's terrible conditions and there's the ship in the harbor but the waves are crashing and they can't get out to the ship because the waves are too big and so the ship's there and they can see it and they can wave to the people but they can't get from the shore to the ship and they wait and they wait and they wait and the sea never calms and what ends up happening, long story short, is the ship stays even longer than it probably should have, but the sea never calms down enough for them to get from shore to the ship, even though they can see one another, and it has to turn around, and they, they're left for another full year until it thaws again. And it was just morally crushing to them, um, as you can imagine. And the reason I think it was is just expectations, right? We're here. We're in this hard thing. We expected to be here. We did not expect to stay another year, especially when we can see the end in sight. And um, there's there's a lot more to that. But that's kind of like what God's trying to prevent for us, right? That God is knows what's going to happen. God knows that the end of history from his death and resurrection until he comes again is not going to be easy. And he doesn't want us having a false impression and being surprised because it's, it is demoralizing um, and it can be and so the first thing that we really want to get home is this life because of sin because of the fall is going to be difficult there's going to be relational difficulties there's going to be spiritual difficulties there's going to be physical difficulties there's going to be things that are difficult emotionally there's going to be big things, governments. There's going to be individual family things. There's going to be so many different ways that it's difficult. And God wants us to know and not be surprised. Be ready to go as we go in. And that's really important. I don't know about you, but for me, when something goes wrong, I still always feel surprised. It's like I just expect the car to turn on and to run. I just expect things to go right. And when I think about my day and I get up in the morning, I expect to follow my schedule, even though I hardly ever do. <laughs> something always comes up, you know, one, one place or another. And even if it's just something small, and yet every day somehow I wake up with that same expectation. 
I think part of it is, is that we know things aren't supposed to be this way, right? We know that there's not supposed to be death. It's like death always seems to shock us, even though we've experienced it over and over and over, and sickness and all these things, because we're in a sinful world. But we know we're meant for something else. And Christ is trying to warn us and remind us, you're still not there yet. Things aren't right yet, and so don't be surprised. That's the first thing. Second thing I want you to notice, and that I think is a very important piece of this, is who is in control? Who's in control? We've got, we just talked about all these difficult things. We read about these four horsemen, which are, you know, even in popular culture referenced a lot, uh, you know, basically the images of difficulty and destruction. Who's in control? I want you to notice several of these things that each, not just one time, but over and over and over in this chapter, it's made very clear that God is in control. That though these things will come, are going to happen, that though we're going to face difficulties, God is still in control. I'm just going to read it several verses here, uh, jumping around, but I just want you to notice certain phrases in here. Uh, this is Revelation 6-4. And there came another horse, bright red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. You hear those two words, permitted and given? Ultimately, God is the one that's allowing these things. God's still in control, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard. Here's another, 6.6. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So in this time, this is a lot of money. This is uh, very difficult to survive at this for an average day laborer. Uh, a day's wage was a denarius. And so it's very difficult to have a family at all on these type of wages. But listen to the second part, and do not harm the oil and the wine. There's difficulty, but there's boundaries. You hear that? This is going to be hard. This particular thing is going to be almost unaffordable, and yet there's boundaries drawn but don't harm the oil and the wine. You see that? It reminds me of Job when Job was had all these difficult things happen, but God said to Satan, don't do this. He said, yeah, you can touch this, but don't touch this. It's that same feeling of, here's a difficulty that I'll allow, but I'm not going to allow this. And that's what we see here in this chapter over and over. Another one, Revelation 6, 8. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. They were given authority. Again, this can't happen without God. Even when we see difficult things going on, even worldwide things, even things that seem inexplicable, why this why would barley and, and wheat be so expensive and yet oil and wine aren't? It seems random. God's in control. God knows. Why this person? Why would this person die of COVID and not that person? God knows. God's in control. God, there's nothing out of his control. Revelation 6.11. Again, a very, very similar idea here. I, one thing I want you to remember is as... The Bible was written in Greek. There was no punctuation at all. And so to get a point across, they would say it over and over. That's why holy, holy, holy is so uh, important when we read, when we talked about that. Um, there was no exclamation point. 
And John, and God through John, is wanting us to see this over and over and over. Yes, here's this hard thing, but don't forget, I'm still in control. And so he repeats it many, many times in this chapter. This is 6.11. And then they were each, this is the martyrs, given a white robe and to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So here's the martyrs. They're asking, like, God, come and bring justice. And God tells them, I've got a plan. There's a number. There's a specific number. And just rest a little longer. Make it a little bit longer. Um, Wait a little longer. Because there's a specific plan here. There's a specific number of brothers and servants. And then I'll put everything right. Give you an illustration here. My friend, he got his degree in forestry. He said it this way. I thought it was really applicable and helpful. Um, just a little bit of a different way to say it than I would have thought of. He said that if you see an old forest and there's all these brambles and, and there's just stuff that it needs to be thinned out. He said it needs to be renewed and what actually needs to happen is there needs to be a wildfire or a controlled burn. And he said, and that's where our world is. Our world is covered in thorns and thistles, and there's a lot that needs to be thinned out. And God knows that. And God actually has a plan. And things are being burned. But he said this. This is what he said. I'm going to read it. You see things are out of control, and they need to be made new. But the things in in this world... It's always a controlled burn. It's never a wildfire because God's always in control. That we see sin, and it, sometimes it looks like it's a wildfire. It looks like it's just burning. You know, it's like, man, well, it's a good illustration for today because we got this smoke coming from Canada. It's like, this is out of control. It's crazy, hundreds of miles away. And we might feel like that looking around the world, that there's wars and famine and pestilence and things that are just... They look like they're out of control. And it looks like a wildfire. Like nobody's got control over this. But it's always a controlled burn. That God never, never, never lets sin get out of control. That even if it appears that way to us, that he has his hand at the borders. You can go this far, but no further. And that's good news. Very important. It brings up another point that I want to remind you is... Towards the end of this chapter, they talk about the great day of the wrath has come when when Christ returns and they call for the rocks to fall. In popular culture, these images of the apocalypse are kind of viewed as God's ultimate wrath. But remember, they aren't. This isn't ultimate judgment yet. That's not going to come till the end. That this is a just a foretaste. That God is delaying his ultimate judgment over this time. Why? Like we saw, so that there more people can be saved. And actually when I share the gospel at Truman, you know, and pass out tracts and talk to people, often people ask about this. Why doesn't God get rid of evil? 
and all sin, you know, if, why doesn't God put everything right if he's so powerful and good? And I'll ask him, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. So get everything, put everything right. Get all sin out. Anything that's going to hurt anybody, um, even little things, get it out. You know, uh, get out of the world. And Does that sound good? Like, yeah, that sounds good. And I, I'll ask him, um, what would happen to you? It's like, oh, well, I don't mean me. Well, do you ever hurt people? Do you ever do things that harm people? Have you ever done anything that God would want to put a stop to? Well, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it good that God is slow and patient, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? We're going through difficulty right now, and every person on the sinful world is. But why? Why are we still here? Because God actually wants to save more sinners before he puts it all right. And aren't we thankful? Can't we be thankful that we, ourselves, God saved us? We were part of the problem, a big part. And yet God was gracious and forgave us. Saved us by the blood of Christ, just like these martyrs here that were given white robes. We were given white robes. And so, is this time from Jesus' resurrection to the end of the world, is it painful? Yeah, but there's a purpose, and it's a good purpose. And that we know God's purpose we can enter into it and we can be thankful and we can agree with him and be be thankful god this is hard these things are hard sickness is hard seeing the things on the news all over the world that are going on that are just horrible it's hard but i'm thankful i'm thankful that there's still more to be saved and would you save would you save more people would you save these people even people that are causing some of these problems. Just save them. And we can be thankful for that. We can be thankful that that's God's plan. One more kind of quick thought about the wrath of God here. I'm going to read you a verse from Psalm 7. Many of these things, we don't see God's direct hand a lot of times. I mean, it, it seems like human beings are doing a lot of these things. There's this, you know, there's pestilence, there's famine, there's wars. Who, and we don't see the immediate hand of God behind it. But I want to read you from Psalm 7. This is a really surprising section, really talking about God's judgment and what it looks like. This is seven, Psalm 7, 12. I'll read it to you here. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. You hear some of the same imagery here. He has prepared his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Okay, so here's what it says. God has got this sin in his sight. He sees it, and he's making ready to stop it. He's got his sword ready, his bow ready, his fiery shafts. What is that going to look like? What is it going to look like when God's judgment descends? Listen to this next section. It's very surprising. What would you say here? What would you expect it to say? Here's what it says about, this is God's sword, this is his ready bow, this is his deadly weapon. Behold, the man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull violence descends. That's surprising. It's like you imagine in many ways like these 
these images we just read, like these dramatic, you know, world-shaking events for the wrath of God to come. And what Psalm 7 says is, what is God's wrath there? What is his ready bow and his wedded sword? He lets people sin and just live with the consequences. That's scary. And so the reason I bring that up is just to remember, as we see these things in our world and in the news and, and many of these things, it may look it may look like that. It may look like, well, this, people are just reaping what they're sowing. But it doesn't mean God's not involved. It doesn't mean God doesn't have a purpose. In fact, one of the ways God shows his wrath and judgment comes is, is that very way, letting people go. It's a scary thing. Okay, let's move on to the last thing here. It's kind of a counterbalancing point to what we talked about. We can be thankful that God hasn't put everything right yet. But that doesn't mean we don't long for that, right? It doesn't mean that we're not ready for him to come and put everything right. We want, we want people to be saved, but we want him to come and to put it right. And that's another thing that's repeated in this chapter over and over and over. As we see all these different things, we see the war and the pestilence and the governments and death and all these different horrible things that we see each day. I mean, you could almost just turn on the news. I could have probably just got a clip of the news last night and seen we could have seen many of these things. Um, but we don't stop there. We want God to put it right. And that's why this, this word is repeated, come, over and over, come. And it's actually imperative, which means to command. And it's second person, so it's like, you come. It's, at, it's telling somebody. It's, if, if it was me to my kids, uh, second person imperative would be, you better come. <laughs> that, that's all in there, you know. Um, although it's, you need to do this. You must do this. I'm commanding you to come. And so the question is, who? What is this talking about? Because I was, uh, when I, I'll read through this. What I usually do to prepare my sermons, I'll read through it in the Greek, and then I'll read through it in the English. And then I'll read the commentaries. And then if I still am not totally sure, uh, well, a lot of times I'm not totally sure, but if I'm particularly confused, I'll call somebody else and ask them, what do you think on this? I'm trying to weigh these things out. And this particular word, come, is repeated over and over. And I wasn't, I didn't really have it included in this sermon, but I was like, it's, it's repeated so many times. It's got to be one of the main things. But I'm just not sure who it's talking about. And the commentators don't really agree uh, on what whether this come is to the horses or whether this come is actually a call for Christ to come and put things right. And so I was talking with one of my friends uh, who um, I've talked to you guys about before, but he uh, he knows more than I do. He he got his degree in um, biblical languages, and okay, here's what I'm reading, and here's what I'm thinking, and asking him. And so we were talking through it. Well, it just seems so strange in a way to say that we can command God. <laughs> Come, God. And so we're working through it, and then we're looking through Revelation, and something jumped out that really surprised me as we were trying to wrestle through this, and he was trying to help me to understand how to interpret this word come. Who is it talking about? And I'm going to read to you from Revelation 22. It's the exact same word, tense and everything, the, um, that we just read in verse 6. 
I, Jesus, sent my angel. You can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. Uh, Revelation 22.16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, as a command, second person to Christ. Come, you come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. <laughs> and let the one who takes a, t- desires take the water of life without price. And then the very end of Revelation is this. Revelation 22, 20, 21. He testifies to me, testifies to these things, saying, Surely I am coming soon. That's what Christ says. And then, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what we say. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. So, though it sounds strange to say, we command God to come, to say, God, come, and we mean it to him and as an imperative. Actually, God tells us to do that. It says, let the one who hears say, come. We're supposed to. One of the reasons, one of the applications of Revelation is, as we see all these difficult things, it's supposed to make us long for Christ's return to put all right. And the result is, in our heart, we cry out in prayer, Jesus, come and put it all right. Do we want every person to be saved that God has a plan for? Absolutely. Do we pray for that? Yes. But we also pray, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Put these things right. And we can be thankful that he will. And he, he's promised. As we see all these things in the world, we have, we have a worldview, right? How do we understand our lives and the news and everything going on all around? How do we understand it? We understand it through the Word of God, right? And what, in terms of this chapter, what are we supposed to take from this? We're surrounded by these things all the time. That it, I would be very surprised if a, a day, let, you know, a day goes by, probably a we could definitely say a week without hearing many of these things that we talked about in this passage about sickness and death and disease and war and governments doing the wrong thing and people killing one another or hurting one another. Over and over we hear about these things throughout our, whether that's the news or whether it's just people in our immediate circle of friends and, and people we know directly. Our response needs to be informed by the Bible. And what did we talk about today? One, we're not surprised. One, we're not surprised. This world is not perfect. Jesus hasn't returned yet. Two, we remember who's in control. That we don't have to be afraid. That when we hear about Ukraine and Russia and all these things, South Korea, North Korea, and all the tensions there... We don't have to be surprised. But we also don't have to be afraid because we know who's in control ultimately. We know that are there going to be difficult things? Absolutely. Are they going to be out of control to God? Absolutely not. And so we don't have to be scared. We don't have to be surprised. And then we actually have a response, something that we're supposed to do. Cry, come, Lord Jesus. Come. Put things right. And we pray. We grieve, 
Absolutely, we grieve. But we don't grieve as those without hope. We've got Christ, and we know He's coming, and we can ask and expect and believe and be thankful. Christ will put it all right. One just piece of application that we might say, you know, particularly is, and I've used this application before, I've said this before, so this isn't new, but as you watch the news, you know, and, and you're updated on these things, or even get updates from other people, just how much do you pray about that? Right? That if we spend 10 hours a week on the news and we pray for zero minutes, I'd say that's a problem. <laughs> Or if it's 10 hours to, to 10 minutes, you know. As we see these things, our mind should be turned back to Christ. That this isn't the way it was meant to be. That this isn't the way his, that God wants it to be. This isn't the way it's always going to be. And yet, what's our response is prayer. We want to cry out for Christ to come and pray for people. We don't want our friends to be some of the people praying let the rocks fall on us. We want to be people that are covered in the white robes. Another way to say the same thing is all these difficulties in our life, they're hard, but each one of them is a reminder and each time we encounter these things, it's a call to be brought back, to put our eyes back on Christ who's the solution for all the problems. And so, I couldn't even begin to list all the ways that we encounter these things in, in your life, whether that's with family or work or just the upkeep of, of a home, how it falls, you know, falls apart slowly over time. You're always doing something. All those things are reminders to look to Christ, to remember that this, isn't our, this is not our home. This is not... The things here are not going to last forever. Um, and to look to Him. And to pray. Come. So I hope this is helpful to you. Um, it's been helpful to me. Even back to how we started, First Peter 2, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Like, as if something strange were happening to you. I still always seem to be surprised one thing that helps me has helped me more than knowing that verse is actually revelation because it's not just saying don't be surprised but it's giving all the different details you know whenever COVID happened whenever these wars happened it's like yep I I knew that difficulties would come because of what God said in his word it doesn't surprise me that countries decide yeah I've got all this but I want more I'm willing to kill to get it, you know. It's not surprising. So I hope it helps you this week. I mean, who knows? I'm sure something, one of these things you're going to hear about this week in the news, and I hope it reminds you to think of Jesus and to cry out to him. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us and care for us. And we do want this to be real in our lives. I pray you'd help help us um, when difficulties come, not to be surprised, but also to trust and to know that you're in control. 
we do cry, um, come, Lord Jesus, we want you to put all things right. We pray you'd save people. Uh, we pray for our friends and our family, different family members and um, close friends that we think of. Um, we just ache for them. Uh, we do not want them to cry, let the rocks fall on us. We want them to know you and find peace in you. Please have mercy on them. Please be near, drawing people to yourself. And we just praise you and thank you that you are in control, um, that things aren't any worse than they are. It's a miracle, really, and we, we know we have you to thank. Thank you so much for putting limits on famine and war and all these things um, that they don't get out of control. I uh, pray that for many people in the U.S. and all over the world that when these difficulties, we hear about them, that they would make us think of you and those that don't know you would really begin to think about eternity and their souls and, and repent. And we just pray, protect us from our own sin. We don't want you to give us over. Um, we don't want to be, um, we want you to keep striving with us. And if there's anything in our life that's not pleasing to you, um, I pray you just show us and bring people in our life to talk to us and, and confront us. We just need you. We need help. Um, we are anxious and ready to meet you and to be with you. Um, but we trust you that you have the right timing. We ask all these things in, in your name, Jesus. Amen.